This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey everyone, a quick note about today's show. We're talking about incidents of police brutality and some of the descriptions may be upsetting. You might want to wear headphones if you're listening around children. According to an investigation by The Guardian, at least 258 black people were killed by police officers in 2016. Tragically, that was not an unusual development. But the widespread release of video footage of some of those encounters was. On July 5, 2016, Alton Sterling was shot and killed while two bystanders took videos on their phones. The next day, July 6, Philando Castile was shot and killed. His fiancée recorded the immediate aftermath of the shooting. A week after these shootings, in the wake of national protests, Ethan Zuckerman was trying to make sense of the killings. He wrote an article in the MIT Technology Review called Why We Must Continue to Turn the Camera on Police. My hope was that the ubiquity of mobile phone cameras and the ease with which people could turn cameras on authorities might be a turning point in the relationship between police and people of color. For the last nine years, Ethan has been a professor at the MIT Media Lab. He studies media, technology, and activism. How did you think that might change the equation? Because this is technology that's been around for a very long time. Sure. It, it's been possible to film things on a video camera going back quite a ways. And uh, in fact, if, if we go back to uh, the Rodney King beatings, uh, we know about that because it was videotaped by someone who had a big, bulky VHS camera. The thought that cameras being ubiquitous in everyone's hands, and beyond that, the fact that it's very, very easy for anyone to publish video these days. All of this felt like something that should end up changing these underlying power dynamics and make it clear to police officers that they were being watched and there might be consequences for their behavior. In other words, in 2016, Ethan was feeling optimistic about the potential for technology to affect real change. He knew that video footage from witnesses didn't always lead to consequences for officers. He knew the issue of police brutality was complex. But here, at the intersection of smartphones and social media, he felt hopeful. Then add to that, in the wake of Michael Brown's shooting and Eric Gardner, the widespread adoption of body cameras by police departments. And again, one might hope that that possibility of being seen on camera would have a deterrent effect as far as use of force uh, by the police. Four years have passed since Ethan wrote that MIT Technology Review article. Since then, Stephen Clark was shot seven times and killed in Sacramento. Breonna Taylor was shot eight times and killed in her Louisville apartment. George Floyd died in Minneapolis after an officer knelt on his neck for nearly nine minutes. The technology-driven changes to the power dynamic between police and citizens that Ethan hoped to see have not come to pass. And now, 
Ethan says he's changed his mind. Today on the show, when video isn't enough, people risk their safety to film the police. Is it making enough of a difference? I'm Celeste Headley, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This summer, Ethan wrote a new article. In it, he looked back on the optimism he felt in 2016, his faith that cameras and social media could reform the relationship between communities and the police tasked with protecting them. But now, he says increasing awareness through video is not enough. He says, I was wrong. It appears that it was George Floyd's killing that may have led you to change your mind. And you describe watching that video and being struck by the police officer's face as he looked at himself being filmed. Can, can you tell me what it was you saw that struck you? He makes eye contact with someone who is filming him. And he doesn't even attempt to say, put the camera away. He isn't embarrassed uh, about what he's doing. That is the image of someone who is looking at someone filming them and felt like there would not be consequences for his actions. I wanted to read back 
something you wrote in your piece. You said the hope that pervasive cameras by themselves would counterbalance the systemic racism that leads to the over-policing of communities of color and the disproportionate use of force against black men was simply a techno-utopian fantasy. I think we often look for technological shortcuts to deep societal problems. Systemic racism, over-policing, fear of Black men in particular, these are giant, thorny, difficult problems. And I think I and many people hoped that police body cameras in particular, but also mobile phone cameras, would tilt the playing field. For me, the most disturbing and maybe dispiriting piece of this was the fact that we're starting to see very good, peer-reviewed, large-scale studies that suggest that uh, police-worn body cameras don't have any measurable effect on use of force, on police misconduct complaints. And that seems really surprising. For whatever reason, this is not shaping police behavior. And I think the answer is that police officers know, consciously or unconsciously, that there are a set of protections that are going to allow them, in most cases, to use extreme force and and not suffer consequences for it. I think that overrides whatever psychological effects we might have from that sense of being watched. And yet it was that video that led to what are now possibly the largest protests in American history. Is that not proof that the the video works? Unfortunately, Celeste, no. And, and I have bad news on that front. Um, my lab at MIT, Center for Civic Media, did a very large study of media coverage of police violence uh, affecting unarmed people of color. So we looked at over 300 instances of unarmed people of color who were killed in encounters with police between 2013 and 2016. What we were able to show was that there was a huge wave of media attention to these stories for about 12 to 18 months after the death of Michael Brown. Before Mike Brown, these were almost always reported as an isolated incident. After Mike Brown, we were 11 times more likely to link these stories into a larger pattern of systemic police abuse and violence. So for that brief period of time, for about 12 to 18 months, we paid much better attention to these stories and we told these stories in a different way. We told them as part of a larger pattern. But by the end of our study, media attention was back down to where it had been before. My prediction is that we will see some sort of 6, 12, 18-month window of attention to stories like that of George Floyd. But unless something else substantial changes, I would predict that that wave of attention uh, will fade away in much the same way uh, that that wave of attention around Michael Brown faded away. So in light of that, let me continue reading from where I read before (laughs) in your piece. You say that techno-utopian fantasy you spoke about was a hope 
that police violence could be an information problem like Uber rides or Amazon recommendations, solvable by increasing the flows of data. But after years of increasingly widespread body cam use and even more pervasive social media, it's clear that information can work only when it's harnessed to power. What, what do you mean here? How do you harness information to power? The hope for change coming out of George Floyd's murder is that this is a moment where communities really go after the structure of police departments and the structure of oversight associated with them. Ferguson, where Michael Brown was killed, is one of the best examples of this. That was a police department that had incredible influence within local government and was functioning almost as um, its own revenue-generating and tax-generating force. That was a police force that structurally had grown out of control. And one of the things that we have to realize is that we can use things like video and imagery to call attention to this, but unless we harness it to changing those broken institutions, uh, we're going to find ourselves back at step one again. So at this point... Do you advocate uh, for people filming the police, or is that a waste of time? No, I absolutely advocate for people filming the police. What I also advocate for is not just filming the police. This issue of putting faith in technology alone, the idea that um, better technology is going to solve humanity's problems. It's so old. It, it is centuries old. It was the subject of science fiction going back pretty much as far as science fiction goes. Why do we keep doing this? We keep doing it because sometimes it does work. I just got out from lecturing in a friend's class at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And UMass is not meeting face-to-face because of the pandemic. But over the course of a couple of weeks, everyone has switched over to Zoom, and we held a perfectly rational and engaged class discussion with 120 people who were logging on from their bedrooms or their living rooms. And if you think about it, that's kind of a miracle, right? We took a system that worked one way, And it works pretty darn well another way, thanks to the intervention of a technology. The trick is that all of our motives and incentives are aligned. The students still want to learn, the professors still want to teach, the universities still want to run. And therefore, we're all on the same side when we try to move from the classroom onto Zoom. What's harder is in a case like this, where the incentives aren't aligned. Citizens who are filming police violence, uh, police who are being filmed, police departments, local governments, all have different views of the situation, different agendas associated with it. It's harder for technology to have that real transformative change because what it's now running into is a political problem. There are um, ways that tech software developers and and tech companies have tried to respond and and make it easier. Um, There are apps that will send your videos directly to the ACLU, for example. There are apps, I think there's one called I'm Getting Arrested, There's (laughs) that that notifies contacts if you end up getting arrested. There's all kinds of things out there that try to make this easier. 
for uh, protesters or activists or even just regular citizens. And I wonder what you think the tech industry could be doing at this point to help. So it makes perfect sense to me that software developers would look at a serious problem like the violations uh, against black and brown people at the hands of the police and say, maybe I can do something, maybe I can build something that will transform all of this. It just turns out that most problems are not technical problems, they're socio-technical problems. I think techno-optimism is actually a, a good thing. I think we want technologists trying to figure out how to tackle these big social problems. I think naive techno-optimism is the problem. And I think what we need are people who do a better job of understanding that the technology is only part of a layered problem. Personally, I never believed in the techno-utopian thing because like, I never, I don't think I ever really believed that technology alone could hold power to account because like that, that, that is, that's never made sense to me. Bijan Steven is a reporter at The Verge. This week, he and his colleagues published a project called Capturing the Police. It explores the role of technology in the relationship between citizens and the police. I read him the excerpt from Ethan's recent article that describes his views four years ago as a techno-utopian fantasy. To me, the idea of filming the police and making this stuff very public is to make it inexcusable and indefensible. This is the hope, right? At some point, the tides will shift and people will recognize this for the inexcusable and inescapable problem that it is. Like the fact that all over the country this is happening in the same way is very important. And I think the the biggest thing about this movement is like now you you can't really pretend like there isn't a problem and to think that the police are going to help everybody 100% of the time. And I think that is the main purpose. It feels almost of a piece with, with strategic nonviolence, right? A lot of the strategy was putting these indefensible acts on TV so other people could see them and witness them. As part of his project for The Verge, Bijan edited a series of interviews with people who filmed police violence. He wanted the perspective of the people behind the camera and to learn how their lives were affected when their videos went viral. I want to talk about the one video that was of Officer Nathaniel Brown. Interestingly enough, the young man who began recording, <laughs> I mean, I, I still remember him saying it in the video that you guys produced, this is not the kind of video you want to go viral for. Mm -hmm. uh, what happened uh, with Officer Nathaniel Brown and these young men? I mean, it was, to put it in sort of the bleakest terms, it was routine. The only thing that was different was Isaiah Benavides had a, had a camera. So they're driving, they're at a barbecue. Mm -hmm. um, the people at the barbecue want more beer for the party. They drive to the corner store to get more beer, and the, the young man in front gets pulled over. And behind him... Isaiah decides to start filming because he's afraid something will happen to his friend. For no problem. For nothing. For nothing. For nothing. He's injured. How often is fear for someone's life a motivator for filming the police? A lot of the time. Because we've seen how often this stuff goes bad. 
Two of his friends were arrested for cursing during the traffic stop, and one officer threatened to break Isaiah's phone if he didn't back away. If you don't get back, I'm going to break your shit. I'm not doing nothing to you. Isaiah posted the video online, and it quickly went viral. But he didn't stop there. He and his friends began protesting outside of the police department. They started a fundraiser for legal fees and a petition asking the department to fire the officer in the clip. A few weeks later, Officer Nathaniel Brown was relieved of duty. Isaiah had never filmed a police officer before that incident. Your reporting seems to reveal an unexpected reaction by many police officers when they realize they're being filmed. Uh, One of the experts that you interviewed um, said that law enforcement sometimes sees the introduction of cameras as a threat, and that alone, filming, can escalate. Yes, I I think I do think that's true. I mean, I I, I think part of it is like because somebody else recording means implies a loss of control on the officer's part. Like they don't get to control the narrative of what happened, which is usually the case. Like that's 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 the other thing that should be underscored here. You know, a police report is generally taken as this is what happened and having an alternative record sort of challenges that authority. Okay, so the the project is is meant to cover how people use tech to bring awareness of police brutality and what it costs them. What do you think the bottom line is? Part of the reason that a lot of this stuff has gone unseen and unpunished for so long is because nobody nobody believed it was happening necessarily. Like the wider public didn't believe the police could be, behave in such brutal ways. And now it's it's you you cannot deny it. Like now it's, you literally have to stick your head in the sand or, I don't know, um, go somewhere without Wi-Fi to, to, to ignore the stream of videos, the stream of accounts, the stream of like people testifying to their own experience. I think, I think that's the very important part. Bijan Steven, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Bijan Steven is a reporter at The Verge. Ethan Zuckerman is a visiting scholar at the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. That's our show for today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks and edited by Allison Benedict and Tori Bosch. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. I'm Celeste Headley. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great weekend. Monday is a holiday, so a new episode of What Next will be in your feed on Tuesday. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.